0: Welcome to Financial Crime Matters with Kieran Beer. I'm Kieran Beer, Chief Analyst and Director of Editorial Content for ACAMS, the world's largest membership organization for anti-financial crime professionals. In this episode of Financial Crime Matters, I talk with Elizabeth Roper, Chief of the Cybercrime and Identity Theft Bureau for the New York County District Attorney's Office. Liz and I talk about what's involved in mounting an effective anti-crime lab and some of the current cybercrime issues that her office is dealing with. I hope you enjoy the podcast and that you'll subscribe to the series either on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or SoundCloud. Here we go.
1: This podcast is sponsored by Refinitiv WorldCheck. For leading risk intelligence, think Refinitiv WorldCheck. WorldCheck helps you identify red flags, fulfill know your customer due diligence screening obligations, and comply with regulations. For over two decades, the WorldCheck Risk Intelligence Database has been delivering accurate and reliable information to help you make informed decisions. It has hundreds of specialist researchers and analysts across the globe adhering to the most stringent research guidelines as they collate information from reliable to reputable sources, such as watch lists, government records, and media searches. To lead the fight against financial crime, it takes more than risk intelligence alone. It takes collaboration. From money laundering to human trafficking to terrorism financing, financial crime is in every corner of the world. So are we, helping you fight it. Refinitiv World Check. Find out more at Refinitiv.com. Amid escalating regulatory demands and a surge in fraud, the need for financial institutions to remain compliant, efficient and informed is paramount. Thomson Reuters helps you meet these challenges with solutions that safeguard your business, maximize efficiency and shield your institution's reputation by engaging in business judiciously, monitoring threats continuously and investigating concerns strategically. Learn more about Thomson Reuters' unmatched data integrity, expertise, and service at tr.com slash risk dash fraud.
0: So, Liz, as I said in my introduction, you're head of the Cybercrime and Identity Theft Bureau, and this is one of the most cutting-edge, anti-cybercrime bureaus in the country. I don't think anybody else has a division like this that it's a local prosecutor, although you are the Manhattan local prosecutors. Tell me a little bit about why this unit is so outstanding.
2: Yeah, well, thank you for the kind words. I think we have an outstanding team Cybercrime and the prevention of cybercrime has been a real focus of our district attorney's administration essentially since its inception. And so we've been very lucky to be able to build out what I think is a really unique cyber operation. And the thing that really makes us special is that we're truly a cross functional team working in a single place. And so we can really holistically work these cases from start to finish within our organization. Our bureau isn't simply the attorneys and the analysts. Who put together the cases after an investigation happens? We consist of not only lawyers and legal support staff, but sworn investigators, a team of bilingual intelligence professionals our digital forensics lab and all of the various components of that and domain expertise that they bring to bear, cell site mapping experts and that technology, as well as an embedded team of NYPD detectives, all working under one roof, uh, or at least figuratively one roof over the course of the past year, but we're getting back to being under the same actual roof. And just being able to, as an attorney working one of these cases, walk into the digital forensics lab and say, Hey, you know, what are you finding? Or, you know, this is a piece of actionable intelligence that we want to incorporate into our search of a device after we've gotten a warrant, or being able to, you know, have an investigator come and knock on an attorney's door and say, What do you think about this next step? Just that co-location and kind of synergy makes our cases, I think, really dynamic and really impactful in the end. Typically, you know, you have an agency that does the investigation. Sometimes they'll enlist maybe an independent threat intel operation. Sometimes they'll send electronic devices out to a third party for analysis. And for us, from the day we first open a case, we're working together with investigators, detectives, analysts, forensic technicians to strategize. And we're consulting our intelligence unit to make sure we have all of the information we need to make the best decision. And that's been really critical to our success.
0: I'm trying to picture in my mind a little bit, what do you need to have a cybercrime unit with your kind of sophistication? If I go in there, what are the components? Uh, I don't want you to give away any secrets to the bad guys, but I'm asking that also, uh, as other prosecutors think about the kinds of tools that are needed, how does that break down into what kinds of capabilities you have?
2: It is resource intensive work. Our lab is incredibly well resourced with a lot of specialized technology, specialized experience and training, tools that you need to not just do the analysis of devices, but also get into the devices in the first place, tools for doing, for example, vehicular forensics, extraction of data from a car, increasingly some kind of more incident response or um, live forensic capabilities. So those are all things that are important resources for us. We're also seeing that more and more It's important to have capabilities around blockchain analysis, so custom tools to do that type of work, as more and more we're seeing cryptocurrencies infiltrate each of our investigations in some way or another, whether it's laundering funds or they're the object of the theft. Those are all important resources for us to have, in addition to, obviously, the kind of human capital that we have and dedicated, well-trained people. But I think... For many jurisdictions, it's not going to be realistic, right, to build out a million-dollar cybercrime lab, and that's fine. Every team who's doing this work, the thing I would say is, look, just identify your team's strengths, whether you're a private entity or a law enforcement organization, whether your strength is taking statements, doing forensic analysis doing forensic accounting, you know, identify what you can do and bring that to bear on some of these issues, because even the sort of quote unquote, smaller cases can have an impact.
0: So you're sort of saying to the local prosecutors that might be envious of your effort, you can have pieces of this choose your battles a little bit in terms of what kind of capabilities you're going to have?
2: Yeah, that's exactly right. I think especially around cyber threats, there can be a real sense of almost hopelessness because the threat is so massive and these investigations are so resource-intensive and so challenging. Even for us, you know, an incredibly well-resourced team, we often hit a dead end after months of really dedicated work, and it can be really frustrating. Added to that, we're all reading constantly in the news about the latest cyber threats and the proliferation of this activity is just exponential. Everyone is susceptible to this sense of, well, let's just throw up our hands and wait for someone else to solve the problem because what can we really do? And I think that's unfortunate. And I think whatever size jurisdiction you are, whatever resources you have, whether it's just going out and taking a statement from someone who's a part of a money mule network and saying, listen, you can't do this anymore, or building a really robust multi million dollar money laundering case against that mule network, you know, both of those things are impactful in their own way. And so I think. The most important thing is just to identify the resources that you do have and leverage them to be as impactful as you can.
0: Obviously, you must frequently work with financial institutions and a lot of the audience are people at financial institutions. What can you tell me about the kinds of capabilities that financial institutions do bring to the table and maybe also what they should be bringing to the table, especially there are certainly financial institutions out there that you must work with that are spending tens of millions of dollars to have these kinds of capabilities?
2: Yeah, sure. So it's true that a lot of the work we do in my bureau is what you would call cyber-enabled financial crime uh, or financially motivated crime. And as a result of that, we do engage really frequently with financial institutions, both major financial institutions and also, you know, newer kind of more niche organizations, you know, maybe in the blockchain space or fintech, et cetera. And regardless of who it is, I do think there are a few common threads. Obviously just having the internal controls to detect threat activity and bad actors, whether it's internal or external is just critically important. And not just that, but having the systems that log that activity. So after it's identified, we as law enforcement can go back in and understand what happened and build a case, whether that's unauthorized access to an account or a group of accounts or some kind of illicit activity on your network having robust logging is really critical for us so we see some organizations that do a really good job of that and they present us with a great breadcrumb trail after there's an event and we can build out from that identify perpetrators and then we have something to go into a courtroom and say look this is what happened here but sometimes we just don't have that Uh, we don't have the records that enable us to identify someone. We don't have the indicators of what even happened. And so it can be challenging to even begin an investigation under those circumstances. So I would say, you know, think ahead about those facts just because it might not seem important when you're crafting your security program to have really robust detailed logs. But for law enforcement, that can make all the difference. In a more general way, a big pain point for us when dealing with financial institutions, frankly, can simply just be turnaround time. The nature of our work is that it's inherently fast moving. And so if it takes months or longer for us to get compliance with legal process like a subpoena, that can really derail our investigation and, frankly, make it impossible to bring a case. The best case scenario for us, the thing that we love to see, is when we have a person or a team inside an organization who's really acting as a partner with us. That could be anyone. It could be someone in the counsel's office, an analyst, uh, someone on the security team, anyone who will, you know, engage with us, pick up the phone, explain things to us, whether that's, giving us a heads up about a filing, walking us through records that we've already gotten, or working with us to figure out, okay, this is gonna take some time. What do you really need? What can we get you on a timeline that's gonna enable you to advance your case? That makes a huge difference for us. On the flip side, you know, when we just start kind of dealing with an anonymous portal or there's delays, that can really derail our ability to investigate and bring a case.
0: I guess the one thing I want to, before leaving this, I mean, you've said a number of things I think that are pretty helpful to financial institutions out there about records and being prepared and having a team. Is there anything that comes to mind about preventative measures when you look at financial institutions in terms of their vulnerability to cyber attacks? Any advice or observations?
2: Yeah, sure. So, I think just acknowledging the vulnerability is really important. We're all vul- vulnerable to these attacks, and they're going to happen. They just are. You know, you could have the most robust preventative system in the world and you're still not going to be bulletproof. Um that's just sort of the nature of the landscape. And so, I would say the most important thing you can do is to have a plan for when something does happen. That includes obviously having really robust backups that are separated from your network. Everyone's of course concerned about ransomware right now. And I think if you do get hit with a ransomware attack, that just puts you in such a more powerful position to say, okay, we can go to these backups and maybe it's not everything, but it's enough to get us back up and running. But you have to have it separated from your network, obviously, because you don't want it to be vulnerable to the attack. You don't want your backup to become part of the compromise. So that's a huge part of it. And just preparation generally, knowing who you're going to call, knowing who you're going to engage, and then when something happens, actually executing that plan, right? I think we've all seen instances where there's a really thoughtful, uh, detailed, well-considered plan and then something happens and everyone you know, sort of throws it out the window because panic sets in and adrenaline is running you know, making sure that everyone's level-headed and actually following the plan is important. And then I would say, coming from my perspective, part of your plan, it doesn't have to be the first part of your plan, but it should be an integral part, is engaging law enforcement. Whether it's us, whether it's the FBI, the Secret Service, whoever your local prosecutor's office is, having a relationship with them in place, so you have a person to call, is just going to help you so much in terms of outcomes. Whatever the type of attack you're dealing with, Engaging law enforcement is probably your best bet for recovering funds or data that might have been lost. It can help you vis-a-vis your regulators, and it's just generally going to enhance the outcome in the end. So I would make a strong pitch for, as part of the plan, having a trusted partnership with a law enforcement agency and reaching out to them. Especially in the case of business email compromise fraud, reaching out to law enforcement can help trigger FinCEN's kill chain to try to recover funds that were wired out as part of one of these schemes. And that's really critical because in those cases in particular, often once we lose that window of opportunity, that money is just impossible to recover. And obviously the same thing is true in cases where payments are made using cryptocurrency. So ransomware cases are the most obvious example. Those funds are really difficult to trace. That's why the criminals use them and engaging law enforcement early on is just gonna increase the chances that you'll be able to trace those funds effectively and maybe recover them.
0: I suppose as those funds are just starting to move through the blockchain and everything, that's part of what's helpful. Exactly. So tell me a little bit, we've mentioned ransomware, what are the kinds of crimes that you're seeing? What preoccupies the time of your office? Yeah.
2: So business email compromise is a huge one. That's a threat that just grows and grows. We continue to kind of see those coming in exponentially. And it's a threat that doesn't get talked about as much as, you know, ransomware and some of the other cyber threats out there and so i think unfortunately a lot of organizations aren't as prepared for that threat as they are for you know a major data breach or ransomware attack which is unfortunate because i think business email compromise is actually relatively easy to prevent you know in the world of cyber threats i would say you know that's that's a really important one to be aware of and have some internal controls in place that might prevent a wire from going out somewhere that it shouldn't Those cases are also really challenging to investigate and prosecute. So we really have tried to shift a lot of our attention to awareness and prevention around that.
0: Let me just ask you quickly, just in case there's anyone out there who doesn't know, the business email compromise is when I call the CFO or I I send an email to the CFO and pretend to be the CEO and say, we need to wire this out right away. Uh, There's a kind of an emergency or something, do this quickly. Is that the kind of thing we're talking about when we talk about business email compromise?
2: yeah that's exactly right there are a few kind of flavors i guess of business email compromise fraud but exactly essentially these are instances where criminals will often gain unauthorized access to a network maybe through a phishing attack or malicious link something like that monitor email traffic within an organization both to learn about ways in which people interact with each other the language that they use and also to identify upcoming financial transactions and then when such a transaction is identified, they'll swoop in either from within the network or more frequently using some kind of spoof domain. So, you know, if you're at kieranbeer.com, they might come up with kieranbeer with an I or a slight variation on your domain to make it look legitimate and say, hey, I've recently changed financial institutions, please send the wire to X. Frequently that wire transfer goes to a, a US-based account so as not to trigger all of the controls that come into play when there's an international transfer. And that US-based account either belongs to someone who is themselves the victim of some kind of scheme. Usually it's a what you know what people call a romance scam. They've been corresponding with someone online who they think is maybe a love interest uh, or a friend. Um, that person eventually says, Hey, can you accept this wire? for me and then send it to my you know family member overseas sometimes the people who receive the transfers are in on the fraud they know what's happening sometimes they're making money off of it but either way once they've processed the transaction it goes overseas and then it's very hard to recover any of the funds
0: i think those are a couple of really important things for people to be thinking about Uh, anything else uh, in terms of things that are preoccupying you now
2: We're all, every agency is seeing just an explosion of crime around cryptocurrency, which is not inherently new. You know, we've all been interacting with digital currencies for quite some time now. When I first started doing this work, it was things like Liberty Reserve or eGold that were basically ways to launder money. Maybe they had some legitimate kind of use cases, but we would see them almost exclusively being used to launder criminal proceeds. But now you have this totally new technology, you have massive mainstream adoption of it, and then you have all the attendant fraud risks that come with that, all of which are kind of accelerated into the span of a couple of years because this is just blowing up in such a rapid way. So we see obviously people stealing cryptocurrencies because they're much harder to recover than fiat currencies and much harder to trace. They do that through things like SIM swapping where criminals will take over someone's phone usually through some kind of social engineering or again, some kind of phishing attempt, you know, will gain access to your phone account by tricking your provider into porting your account from your device to a device that they control. So calling up and saying, Hey, AT&T, this is Kieran. I just got a new iPhone or I lost my phone or it's broken. Here's the new device. Can you port my account over here by doing that? they enable themselves to receive any two-factor authentication codes that you have set to come to your cell phone. And often that type of two-factor authentication gets used for crypto accounts that will enable the criminals to transfer out any assets that you might have in those wallets. And so we've seen A huge proliferation of that as more and more people start engaging with cryptocurrencies and are out there kind of talking about them, their risk profile kind of increases and we see them victimized by those attacks. We also see people being taken advantage of because they're kind of wading into this new space. It can be a little bit confusing. Um, There's not as much regulation around it. And so they'll fall victim to things like account takeovers or phishing attempts where someone impersonates a legitimate exchange or a legitimate wallet provider and People, unfortunately, just have significant assets transferred out that become incredibly challenging to trace and recover for them. And of course, we're seeing criminals using cryptocurrency the same way. They use the kind of first generation iterations of it, uh, which is just to launder the proceeds of crime. Um, But it's much more efficient and effective now that you have things like uh, mixing services and a whole host of anonymization technologies that can be leveraged to essentially make it impossible for us to recover stolen funds or proceeds of crime
0: maybe we can just talk briefly we're running out of time about some of the cases that you're dealing with or maybe just one of the cases that you're dealing with and i know you deal with external threats and you deal with internal threats tell me a little bit about what, in a, in a way that'll help people understand how you operate there's been this recent case with the uh, eastern district of new york that you did that was a kind of an insider case
2: yeah that's right that was i think a real Success story in the end, um, although a long time in the making. So, that was a case in which a financial institution worked with us. A couple of employees had been identified as having inappropriately accessed bank accounts that it turned out belonged to, I think, typically higher net worth individuals, but people who were elderly or sometimes even deceased. And then those, you know, quote unquote insiders worked with a pretty vast criminal network to exfiltrate funds from those accounts in a variety of different ways and then send them to dozens of sort of layers of different shell accounts all over the country, all over the world and launder the proceeds of the theft. Pretty incredibly complex um, structure. So that investigation was, you know, a years long case. We, We did, as you said, end up teaming up with the Eastern District of New York to bring the case. For a variety of reasons. Um, they were a great partner of ours in that case, alongside you know, a, a handful of other federal agencies and the financial institutions themselves, you know, were, were really instrumental in our ability to bring that case. In the end, we apprehended and charged five people. We were able to attribute over seven million dollars in fraud to the group, and that was just a great effort that was made possible by this initial identification by a financial institution of suspicious insider activity. It's a good kind of lesson in not minimizing or overlooking those threats, because what seems like maybe something relatively innocuous or not that serious can be associated with something like this, which ended up being an international uh, multi-million dollar money laundering operation
0: if somebody wants to look into that case too there's a little more information out there on the district of attorneys of new york your website is that right
2: yeah absolutely we have on our website which is manhattanda.org information on a number of the of the bigger cases that my bureau has done and if anyone wants to learn more about these threats or ways in which you know we work with partners to address them some of those materials would certainly be instructive i think
0: so cybercrime seems to represent the threat and the crime of the future. I guess as we end, tell me, you know, where you see this threat going or uh, emerging in new ways and then maybe just concluding um how do you feel about our ability to kind of counter this and are, are you sort of optimistic or is there some real reason for despair here frankly?
2: <laughs> right. Well, hopefully not despair. I think the thing that's frightening to me right now is frankly the relative lack of sophistication that it takes to commit these crimes. There used to be this sort of inherent barrier to entry in cybercrime. You had to have the skill set to write malware or deploy it or infiltrate a closed off part of the network that you were on or even encrypt your data so that law enforcement couldn't get to it. Now, so many of those things are kind of baked into what we do every day or can be bought off the shelf. You see, ransomware as a service, where really anyone with little to no understanding of programming can lease the infrastructure to commit these attacks, and they can be really devastating. Encrypted communications are now basically the default, which is great in a lot of ways, but also you know kind of benefits the people who, in prior years, we would have easily apprehended. That's a steeper mountain for us to climb now. So I think it's just a lot more accessible to people who might be interested or willing to commit cyber attacks. But I think, you know, to end on a positive note, I'll talk a little bit about what makes me hopeful. And that's the incredible talent that I see converging around this threat. When I started working on cyber cases, I didn't come into it with any specialized knowledge of computer science or the cyber world. I just had an interest in investigating complex things and sort of learned as I went along. Now we see people who at the outset say, I want a career, you know, fighting this threat. We currently in my office have a class of incredibly bright summer interns. It's that time of year. And I have people reaching out to say, oh, I took a course in cyber conflict or the law around cybersecurity and privacy. And they want to know all about what we do. And it's just so great to see that. I think we're seeing it um, at that level. We're seeing it at the highest levels of government too. We're devoting more and more resources to this threat in a way that we haven't before as a country. Um, and we've just got really bright people coming out of school, really bright people, the highest ranks, looking at this threat. So all of that makes me ultimately optimistic about
0: the future. Well, let's be thankful for the bright people. And I think we're also thankful, uh, Liz, for your efforts. Uh, What a pleasure to talk to you. Uh, Elizabeth Roper, Chief of the Cybercrime and Identity Theft Bureau in the District Attorney of New York's office. Thanks, Liz.
2: Yeah, thank you so much, Karen. It was great to talk to you.
0: Thanks for listening to my conversation with Elizabeth Roper. I hope you found the podcast compelling and that you will subscribe to Financial Crime Matters on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or SoundCloud, so that you'll get an alert for each new podcast. Because financial crime matters to me and to you. See you next time.